Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, John Manuel Andriot, spent years working with people with HIV. And then one fateful day, he received a phone call in which his doctor told him that he himself was HIV positive. That led John into a lifelong service of patients with all manner of conditions. Reflecting back on his days with people with HIV, he says, There are a lot of transferable lessons from HIV, from, from AIDS activists that are really relevant to people with all kinds of conditions. One of them is to be as informed as you possibly can. Information really is power. Here to share his experiences thus is John Andriot. John, you're very welcome to this call. I'm so pleased that you've taken the time to share your story with us. I want to start this conversation on the point that you've identified in your story some years ago. It was a phone call. Tell us about that phone call and what happened and what was the context of that call. I had a phone call from my doctor, my primary physician in Washington, D.C., where I was living at that point, uh, on October 27th, 2005. He was calling to give me the results of my blood work that was part of my annual checkup from the week before. And he had been my physician at that point for maybe 15 years. So this was sort of a routine year after year that he would call to give me my my test results. Only this time, he seemed a little nervous, I guess, in making our opening small talk. And then his first comment was, I have bad news on the HIV test. And it took me a moment to sort of grasp what exactly he had said. And then he gave me my cholesterol and my blood pressure and and other readings and so forth. But it was only after we hung up the phone that the, the weight of what he had told me really descended upon me. And it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking because at that point, I had been reporting on HIV AIDS as a journalist in Washington from the time I was in journalism school in 1985 at Northwestern. And all those years as an HIV negative gay man in Washington, I had witnessed the illness and deaths of so many of my friends and men that I knew. And I had literally, I I had just turned 47 years old a couple weeks before that. And at that age, I had thought I had dodged that particular bullet, that HIV was not going to be the thing that, that got me, so to speak. And being a good skeptical journalist, I insisted that I go to my doctor's office and have a follow-up HIV test, because of course, denial is very potent. And I thought, well, maybe he confused my lab result with someone else's. And so I went to his office, 
that afternoon and I had a rapid HIV antibody test and I watched it turn to the positive indication. So I literally saw it with my own eyes. There was no denying it anymore. And now I had to deal with the reality of something that I had written about in other people's lives for 20 years. And now suddenly this was going to be my reality. And the, the big question was, how am I going to live with HIV? What is it going to mean in my life? And I have to say, I felt terrified, actually. Not as much maybe of HIV itself, because I knew that the medications available could suppress the virus and allow me to live with HIV rather than progress to advanced untreated HIV, also known as AIDS. But I was terrified of the side effects of the medication, the potential for lipoatrophy, for developing a buffalo hump. I mean, I was really scared of what might lie ahead. So it was a lot of fear that I felt at the beginning and panic as to how am I going to pay for these extremely expensive drugs? Because of course in the US we don't have national health insurance and I had an individual policy, but my policy capped prescription coverage at only $1,500 a year. And that was fine as long as all I needed was allergy medications for my spring allergies. But suddenly I needed drugs that cost much more than that a month. So I was in a big panic about how I was going to pay for this and terrified of the side effects of the drugs. That was the beginning of my HIV experience. Very easy to feel very sorry for yourself and to take on the mantle of the victim and say, why me? Why now? I'm 47. I did all the right things. I knew all about this condition and now I've got to live with it. How did you make the transition from that point to the point later on when you decided that you were not going to be a victim in this situation? Well, I would say that it took me a while. <laughs> it took a number of months really to process this shocking um, information that I had. And for the longest time, I was really on emotional edge. You know, I would cry very easily. I couldn't sleep. I was experiencing side effects of the medication as my body sort of got used to these highly toxic chemicals that I was putting into my body. And about six months after my diagnosis, I asked my primary physician if he would recommend a psychiatrist. I, I had worked years before for the American Psychiatric Association, AIDS Education Office. So I was very comfortable with mental health and psychiatrists. And my feeling was that if there's something organically wrong that can be treated with medication, 
to help me to function at my highest level, which had always been my, my commitment to myself, then I was willing to do that. Well, fortunately, I had a good psychiatrist in, in Washington, D.C., and in our initial intake visit, he said, you are basically depressed. There's a reason that you're depressed. It's situational depression. Anyone in your position would be depressed. But he said, you're a highly resilient man. And he actually said, and this was so puzzling to me at that point, this is a very exciting time in your life because suddenly all the questions are up in the air. All the balls are in the air for you to decide how you want to live the rest of your life. Once you're confronted with the fact of your mortality, suddenly you have to decide, what do I want to do with the time that remains, whether it's six months or 50 years? So it was a real rude awakening, I think. And I took the information from my, I saw him for a few months actually in, in therapy. So it wasn't just a, an intake visit and, you know, a psychiatric diagnosis, but I asked if I could see him for a few months and work on some issues that needed more help than I was able to have the inner resources to, to deal with. So that was really the beginning, I would say, of my thinking about what does this mean in terms of who I am, who I want to be, what role will HIV play in my sense of my personal identity, and I quickly realized that the way I wanted to live with HIV is that, as I described it, HIV is something I have. It's not who I am. Who I am continues to be John. And I didn't want to be defined by a medical diagnosis. So... Interestingly, because I had been writing about HIV and AIDS for 20 years, I was very immersed in the history of the epidemic, particularly the, the gay community's experience of dealing with the epidemic from the beginning. And I had written a book called Victory Deferred, How AIDS Changed Gay Life in America, for which I interviewed several hundred people in the United States I was very familiar with the earliest generation of gay men in San Francisco and New York and how they had decided that they were not going to be victims. They approached their diagnosis, which in the early 80s was a devastating diagnosis. There was no treatment. But they determined that they were not going to be victims. They, they said in the Denver Principles, this sort of constitution that a group of them created in Denver in 1983, 
They said, we are people with AIDS. We're not AIDS victims. They insisted on being equal partners in any decision made about their health and any, anything to do with their, their future, they insisted on having a voice in it. And I decided they were going to be my role models for how I was going to live with this virus. So that literally is the history of how I chose to live my experience with HIV is that I'm a person first and a medical diagnosis second, that this is something I have. It does not define me as, as a human being. So that was a really important part of my story, my experience. That was a beautiful reframe from saying, here you've got this diagnosis, but this diagnosis is not who you are. You are a person first and having the condition as a secondary aspect of your persona. Meanwhile, you're dealing with the reality of having the condition and therefore all the financial things that you talked about. Let's go back to that a little bit and talk about the pragmatic side. How were you handling that? Well, because I had been reporting on the epidemic for two decades at that point, I had a lot of contacts, people who were experts in the field of HIV in all sorts of capacities and roles, from research scientists to AIDS activists to service providers, policy people, really. And I knew people all across the United States. So I literally reached out to people I knew and at first, what I was looking into was whether there was a way that I could buy the drugs at a lower price than what they cost in the United States. Because, of course, I knew that in America, we pay more for the prescriptions, prescription medications developed by American pharmaceutical companies than most other countries in the world. So I looked into that. And I also contacted a friend, uh, Cornelius Baker, who at that point was a former executive director of Whitman Walker Clinic, today Whitman Walker Health in Washington, D.C., the, the LGBT health center. And Corny suggested that I look into a clinical trial at Whitman Walker and I was able to get into a clinical trial that was testing post-approval drugs that had already been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, in particular, Kaletra and Epsicom, Epsicom against, gosh, now I'm forgetting the other drug. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it provided my medications free for 96 weeks. During that time, I had decided to leave Washington and I moved home to my home state of Connecticut. And so once again, by that point, I was an empowered patient and also still, you know, well-connected 
And so I reached out to the local HIV organization in Southeastern Connecticut, Alliance for Living. I got plugged into services, was able to get my medication continued. And the, the transition was a little bumpy because what happened is when I left Washington and moved to Connecticut, my income plummeted and suddenly I was like most people with HIV in the United States living in, in poverty, basically. And the nice thing about being a, a poor person, at least in Connecticut, is I was able to get into the state's Medicaid program, which is the federal state insurance program for low-income people. So I was able to get excellent medical care. I was able to get my very expensive medications paid for with no co-pays. I was very self-conscious when I would go to the pharmacy to pick up my drugs, knowing that most people there were having to spend a lot of money to get their medications, but my medications that cost three to $4,000 a month, it didn't cost me anything. So I used to joke that what a price to pay for getting assistance with my medications, living with a potentially fatal illness seemed a rather steep price to pay for that assistance, but I was extremely grateful for it. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast. I'm your host, Moez Jiwa. You were not only resilient, but you were also very resourceful in how you've handled this situation because you've leveraged all that you had at your disposal in order to do what was right for you. Anyone listening to this with another condition might look at you as a role model and say, how could I handle this? And there are some key generic elements in what you're describing. You're describing groups of people who are there to support one another with the same diagnosis. You're describing how the system can actually work for you if you know what you're doing. What's your advice to people in those circumstances? Well, absolutely. There are a lot of transferable lessons from HIV, from, from AIDS activists that are really relevant to people with all kinds of conditions. One of them is to be as informed as you possibly can. Information really is power. And there was a slogan that came out of ACT UP, the, the AIDS Coalition, to unleash power, the the AIDS activist group that started in New York and then spread literally around the world. But their slogan was silence equals death. And the flip side of that is that knowledge and information equals power. The Health Design Podcast, hosted by the Journal of Health Design and Alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
So to be as well informed as you can be about your own condition, that's the first step. The second step is really to be your own champion, your own best advocate, and not to take no for an answer. If you feel you need a second opinion from a physician, ask for it. And if you don't get it, insist upon it. (laughs) Go to another doctor. When you are looking out for your own health, no one can stand in your way. You really have to be persistent and insistent. And you also have to, the third step is to adhere to your treatment, whatever that might be, if it's prescription medication or certain exercises, a diet, whatever it is, it's in your interest. The doctor isn't telling you to eat the DASH diet because of his own blood pressure. (laughs) It's to help you with your own hypertension. So take your doctor's advice. Benefit from the expertise of the medical people who you consult. They are there to support you in your journey. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. That advice applies to people no matter where in the world they live. Whether you live in the United States or you live in Australia or you live in the UK or anywhere else, you're right. Be as informed as possible, be your own champion and adhere to the treatment. I want to explore another aspect of this, which is where do you get the personal support? You talked about that amazing psychiatrist who reframed things for you and really pushed you in the direction of taking more ownership, more agency, as it were. Did you find you needed other support? Friends, family, where did they come into the picture? I've never actually joined an HIV support group, per se. I know they exist, but I had friends who I could be open with and talk about my my illness. I also have participated in, especially in more recent years, in groups of very empowered health advocates, people who have all sorts of health and medical challenges who are inspiring and empowered and have encouraged me and supported me. And I I feel as though we have kind of had a synergy uh, working with one another and encouraging one another along the way. So It has been a matter of connecting with other people with HIV and also with other health conditions, because as you said, the the issues really transcend particular diagnoses. And many of those people have been guests on this show, and they are, as you say, inspiring. And it doesn't matter what the condition that they're talking about. They seem to say all that you've underlined 
for us today. Tell us a little bit about what you are now doing. Where is your health advocacy leading you in the next few years? My personal journey led me one year ago, April 1st will be one year since I moved from Connecticut a thousand miles away to Atlanta, Georgia. And I, over a few months of interviewing and and sort of waiting and hoping, uh, I was hired last summer to be senior writer for Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University here in Atlanta. Winship is one of about 50 cancer centers designated by the National Cancer Institute as comprehensive cancer centers, meaning they conduct both research and provide clinical care for patients. What I have found at Winship that has been really exciting to me and and extremely inspiring is that Winship's model of providing care and support for people with cancer is, they call it the Winship way, but basically it's all about a a patient-centered approach. It's very much what AIDS advocates starting in the early 80s were pushing to build and see come out of our medical system in the United States. So it's very exciting and gratifying to me and extremely interesting intellectually as I get to interview research scientists and clinicians and surgeons. And at one point, I was sitting at home and thinking about my job and thinking about Winship and a light bulb came on and I said, these people, these doctors and nurses that I am working with and getting to know and interviewing, they're exactly the same type of person as I have known in the AIDS arena for all these years. They're compassionate, they're very focused on their patients, they talk about empowering their patients, Patient empowerment is actually built into their medical model so that they connect their patients with support groups and and so forth. There's a quote that I came upon recently that I I, um, thought of, and it's, it's a quote from Walt Whitman in his poem, Psalms of Myself, his poem cycle, where he said, I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I become the wounded person. And for me, that's very much like the concept of the wounded healer. And that is the person who also is wounded, who has known illness and who has scars that life leaves on on all of us is the person who is most able to be compassionate and to provide real healing to others who are suffering. And I I just find that a really powerful and inspiring image. 
It is. And when you think about it, ironically, there you were in 1985 doing this work and then getting the diagnosis yourself. You were able to walk very much in the shoes of the people who you were serving for many decades before it was your turn to do the same. Do you feel that as a consequence you are better at what you do? Do you, th- do you feel that in some perverse way this experience has made you stronger? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Going back again to the psychiatrist that I saw in 2005, 2006 actually, because it was a few months after my diagnosis, and his comment in our intake visit saying that you don't need medication. He said, you're actually very resilient. And I had never thought about resilience, really. And I had never thought about myself or my own resilience. And that was really the beginning of a journey that I made toward discovering my own resilience. And where did that come from? I actually wrote about this in my most recent book, Stonewall Strong, Gay Men's Heroic Fight for Resilience, Good Health, and a Strong Community. And the the first part of the four parts of that book is my own story in 10 brief chapters, at least uh, leading up to shortly after my diagnosis. And and it, it looked at my process of revisiting traumatic events in my past, my growing up years, then, of course, all the friends that I lost to AIDS and people I lost to cancer, because cancer has affected almost as many people in my life, in, in my circle of loved ones and friends as HIV has done, which is one of the reasons I took the job at Winship Cancer Institute, because I I felt I had something really to contribute there, a a perspective from my years in HIV. But yes, I, I realized that I really am a resilient person and that I've paid a big price for that resilience but that that is what enables me to encourage other people to look into their own lives and to look at the times that they've had to be strong, that they've had to get through a really challenging, painful, even traumatic experience. And I try to bring to their awareness, how did you get through it? What did you tell yourself? What songs did you listen to to inspire you to, to keep going when it seemed like you might not be able to keep going? But to bring their own resilience to their awareness so that when they face challenges in the future, they can call on that knowledge that they, they now have brought to their consciousness. So as we bring this conversation to a close, John, what piece of advice would you give somebody who gets that phone call today? Well, I think my first piece of advice would be you will 
survive. This the phone call from your doctor is not the end of the world. It's the beginning of the next phase of your life that it's important to know, and this was really key for me when I had that phone call, is that the only difference after the phone call compared to before the phone call was that I now had information that I didn't have prior to the phone call. In other words, I already had HIV. I wasn't aware of it. My doctor now made me aware of what was going on inside my own body. And so then it was up to me what I was going to do with that new information. And I think it's important to say, you also have to give yourself a lot of room to process this information, to feel really difficult emotions and also to reach out for help and support from people who love you, who you can share this with and you know will be on your side with you. And then to begin the process of equipping yourself with information. And again, information is power. And that's the kind of power that you will need to move yourself forward, but that you will move forward. And you, you don't have to stay stuck in the pain of that initial shock of the diagnosis, but that it's one of the experiences in life. It's a traumatic experience. But again, you are, will be able to look at other traumas that you have survived prior to that and to be able to call on the strength that you already possess to help you get through this newest challenge. But you will. You, you'll be able to deal with it one step at a time, really. John Manuel Andriot, you're resilient and you're resourceful. There is no question about that. Thank you for drawing our attention to the Denver principles that those are key because they tell us that we are not defined by a virus or a mutation in our genes that leads to all kinds of problems for us. Thank you again. Thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.